There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Monday, December 17th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're talking about how our cities are designed to make us lonely and what urban planners want to do to change that. Loneliness is partly social isolation and partly our own subjective interpretation of our lives. But in either case, it's become a public health problem in our cities. It makes our lives shorter, our bodies more subject to disease, and our minds vulnerable to depression and other mental illness. And it's pervasive, especially for young adults 18 to 22 years old. I sat down with vice journalist Ankita Rao to learn more about the problem and what we can do about it. Hi, Ankita. Hey, Sophie. So you wrote an article about loneliness in our cities and how it's actually kind of an epidemic so much so that there are conferences about it and people researching the issue. But to start off, I want to understand how much loneliness is an individual experience about kind of circumstance and perception and how much of it is collective and based on our built environment. That's a really hard question to answer because loneliness is such an individual thing. In fact, the metrics for even measuring someone's loneliness are very subjective. They have a lot to do with how that person perceives their own life more than they do about how many people that person is surrounded by or or how many friends they have or any other thing like that. But there's various different ways that health practitioners and scientists look at that. And then if you're looking sort of at the extended environment of that person, again, it's really tricky because... There's loneliness in rural areas, there's loneliness in suburbs, there's loneliness in cities. Um, And there are people in the country experiencing that across the board. And so I think the short, long answer is there's not really a clear-cut way to answer that question. I chose to focus on loneliness in cities because it's something that I see and have felt. Yeah, I've felt it too. I mean, we both live in New York City and... It's funny how the places that are kind of the busiest and most dense with people can be the loneliest sometimes. Is loneliness contagious like other epidemics that we see? So I think that applying the same terminology to loneliness as we do different types of disease can be tricky because this is both a societal and individual and mental health and emotional well-being issue. But A lot of scientists have found um, there's this sort of famous longitudinal study out of Framingham, Massachusetts, but that have found that there is a sort of collective experience of loneliness, whether or not you want to say that's contagious is sort of up to you or up to the scientists. But people have found that there's a ripple effect. And a lot of that is because if there's something that 
is impacting one person that's making people more lonely, whether that's our technology or the way our, you know, schools work or workplaces work, whatever it is, it's not just affecting one person. So as those trends sort of happen, they are happening to a lot of people. Right. And that's why your article focuses on our built environment and the things that affect many people and people kind of collectively in cities. So what are some of the things that are making our cities so isolating today? There's a lot of different elements of our cities that have changed and shifted from the ways that cities used to be planned until now. If you go to for example, some place like Venice. Venice is a city that's built around a big piazza that's like the main focus of the city and then it comes out from there. A lot of other cities, including in the U.S., started like that. There was a town square. There was a, you know, sort of a central meeting point that was very open and and a hub. And that's changed a lot. Now you can see that a lot of things have been moved around to make space for cars and parking lots instead of humans. And I think Vehicle-focused cities, for example, are one of the biggest reasons that, you know, sort of social interaction has been pushed aside. Other things like tall fences, if people are scared of crime, can be really isolating. Not sort of utilizing nature well, whether it's parks or waterways. And, for example, just here in Williamsburg, where our office is, if you see the water so much of the view of the water is obstructed. It was all used for industrial purposes and built out from there. And even after that industry died off, it still wasn't remade for for humans. For us, we're just starting to see inklings of parks and stuff like that. So I think our built environment has so much to do with the way that we experience our cities. Yeah, I think that one really important point that you make in your story is that Our cities today have fewer and fewer public spaces, and instead we're seeing this rise of kind of like quasi-public spaces that are actually privately owned, like coffee shops. And that's where you see people having face-to-face interactions, but they're not having them in truly public places anymore. I've noticed that a lot in my own life. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about the cause and effect there? Yeah, I think with the sort of financial ebbs and flows of a city, with cities experiencing the stock market crash a few years ago, things like that, um, people get really nervous. They sell off land. They sell off public space. They don't protect these things that are inherent to good urban planning. It's not just, you know, coffee shops and indoor spaces, but even if you look at some of our parks and green spaces in the city, they're owned by the Koch brothers or or you know other corporate entities and the problem is that even though that might seem nice like some corporation is protecting a little bit of green space maybe they threw a few benches in that also makes parts of the city very vulnerable you know and we know that central park is going to remain central park they're not going to sell off part of central park um, and build a high rise in the middle but these places are very transient they could be sold off at any second anything that's privatized. And once we see that trend towards privatization, you can no longer rely on that as a citizen of that community. That is no longer being created in your interest or with you as a stakeholder through your taxes. It is up to somebody else what happens to that space. So I think that part of the help and and the feeling of 
being integrated into a city and with the other people of the city is having this constancy and being able to rely on our public spaces. And I think that has become pretty scary in and, and not just New York City, but across the country and probably the world. Yeah. So what are some of the initiatives happening either by urban planners or people in the government or, you know, more grassroots attempts to build more people centric spaces in our cities? Yeah. So there's been a huge shift, you know, in the urban design community to create a healthier, happier city. Um, And there's a conference called Livable Cities. There's multiple conferences around loneliness. There's a book called Happy City that talks about tons of government interventions. And some of this means shutting down certain roads so they're no longer open to cars and are pedestrian-friendly. Some of this means making our public housing with more community gardens and and instead of sort of being scared of, of... you know, lower income communities having more violence or something or instead of that, but rather opening them up and making their sort of be more natural surveillance so people can see what's happening in their community. Other designers are trending away from these huge monolithic, huge buildings and and the having building facades that are just glass and steel and making sure they're divided into different mixed-use parts, like putting more tiny stores and boutiques on the bottom. Um, One of the things that has been known to make people feel depressed, for example, is a kind of long block of one facade that doesn't have any breakups in it. So if you're just walking and there's just one sort of long building that looks exactly the same for that whole block or two, which we've seen a million times, it actually affects people's moods and the way that they feel. So so there's designers looking at how do we make those less frequent and make them feel more lively and more engaging. So there's a, a million different things that people are doing inside and outside. But I think the the thread that we're seeing is that they're recognizing that there's a problem here and that our buildings were becoming less human-focused, and that's where the changes started. I think that attempting to build more beautiful, healthier, people-centric public housing is really important, and to really believe that that is not only possible, but like should be a priority. And you gave a really interesting example of a very successfully designed public housing complex in Austria. Would you talk about what made that so effective? Sure. So Fraunworkstadt, which I have no idea if I'm saying that right or wrong, um, is a public housing complex in Vienna, Austria, that was both designed by women and created for women. So we're talking about a lot of single women families, but also families where the woman is often the breadwinner or maybe the center of that family. And the design of this complex was created with really specific elements. So first, they're sort of practical things like it had to be built close to transit and close to a school, close to grocery shopping, things that immediately make it an easier place to live for families. And then instead of putting up like big barriers and, and, you know, big fences, they made the sidewalks larger so that more people could sort of walk by each other, make them more friendly. There were more, there was more lighting so that people felt safer. There were also larger stairwells because they noticed that a lot of times moms would stop and chat in stairwells and creating them 
to be larger actually made them another social space instead of being somewhere someone could jump out at you or surprise you. Like a lot of the models that we've talked about, there is more open surveillance, which surveillance, I think, has a negative connotation a lot of times for us. But this just means that moms could see their kids playing around in the yard from their kitchens or from their living rooms and could feel safe enough to have their kids playing outside without needing to constantly be by their side. So yeah, so all of these different little elements went into designing these buildings that have been proven extremely successful, have made uh, livelihoods stronger, have made people feel a lot safer, have brought crime rates down. And the United Nations actually pointed at this as one of the most egalitarian housing developments in the world, which I think is something else we don't often think about. And looking at New York, I mean, New York does have a stronger public housing system than so many cities in the country. It's it's pretty well spaced out across the city. It's not sort of shoved away, you know, or siloed into one part of the city. But at the same time, it was built a lot in response to the crime rates that were here a, a while ago. And people think of the New York projects in a certain way. And it's been hard for them to design themselves out of that mindset. So it's good to have projects like the one in Austria to look at. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that really kind of furthers your point about how important intentional design is, is this cool research that showed that not only do people respond better to nature, which seems kind of obvious, but the less obvious thing is that people respond better to green spaces that are imbued with meaning. So like cemeteries or maybe like a hospital garden or something like that. And I I think it it just furthers your point about, you know, what we can get out of spaces that are designed with people in mind. Of course, I think like all of us would say our favorite places in the world are not just naturally beautiful or or designed a certain way, they remind us of something or they remind us of a feeling or of a person or of a certain emotion. And I think that's what this loneliness piece comes down to. It's not just about making something beautiful. It's not just about making something functional, but what makes us feel connected to somebody else. And in this case, hospital gardens seem like it could be a really depressing thing, but it's also a place of healing. It's also a place of you thinking about somebody that you care enough about to be visiting, or if a person is sick, for them to feel like they have their own space. Even cemeteries, for example, can be sort of imbued with more meaning and sentimentality and things that make people connected to each other. And more than sort of a vast green space that doesn't have any meaning for you, these are the things that we actually care about. So, yeah, I think it's it's so fascinating to to recognize that. Um, and it sort of changes the way you see your city when you start to have your spots and your places. And if the city can, in turn, be designed in a way to give you more opportunities to have your spots and places and feel safe and happy and and remember the people who love you and who you love, I feel like it's sort of a win-win situation. Yeah, totally. One thing I wanted to talk about was your interview with a neuroscientist on this topic and something he said, which is that actually our brains aren't really evolved to live in cities in the first place. And I'm wondering if he had any suggestions sort of on how we can adapt when 
you know, maybe these environments aren't the healthiest for us. Yeah, I talked to Colin Ellard, 